Welcome back. This is Kelly Gregg of kellygreggregg.com, and this is podcast number 44 of the podcast series of Diet and Health, which is a book I have written that will appear on Amazon or at my website. This is basically a series of podcasts going through each chapter of the book, kind of like an audiobook in podcast form. Of course, my goal is to get you to buy the book, so sometimes I'll leave out some key ingredient. In any case, we are now in the bread section of the book. If you've listened before, you know how important bread is historically. The goal of the whole book is to get people on a proper maintenance diet, and I am addressing mainly the food engineer, the person responsible for the food in the family. This chapter is titled Flour Engineer. Flour is a powder made by grinding roots, beans, nuts, seeds, or grains. For my purpose, I will confine the discussion to the cereal grains that I have discussed previously. You know about the different types and classes of grains, enough that you have some idea of what you are getting when you order grains to grind yourself. The result of this grinding or milling is going to be flour. No matter if you do it yourself or buy it from the store, we end up with flour. Remember, the grain is the seed of the plant and contains an embryonic plant with enough nutrition to enable the plant to produce roots and leaves prior to photosynthesis starting. Let's look at the seed for a second. We know that the wheat grain is composed of three parts, the bran, germ, and endosperm. The bran contains the husk and indigestible cellulose, the germ contains the protein and fat, and the endosperm, the starch, and some protein. Of course, life is not that simple. The bran is not just a very thin layer over the seed, but it is about 15% of the weight of the grain, as opposed to the germ, which is only 3%. There are three general layers of bran covering. Algeron layer, about 8% of the grain weight, testa layer, about 1%, and pericap, about 4%. These are divided into inner and outer. The bran alurone layer contains soluble and insoluble fiber, proteins and enzymes, essential amino acids, vitamin E and B, minerals, which may be complex with phytic acid, lipids, plant cholesterols. The testa layer contains sterols, alkyl resorcinols, and sterol ferulates. You can look up these compounds, but essentially they are complex molecules that can be used by your body. The pericap contains insoluble dietary fiber and antioxidants. The point of these sentences is to get you to realize that bran is not just some cellulose cover that only serves to protect the seed from the environment. The bran is rich enough in nutrients that can, it can be a component of cattle fodder. Dietary fiber is not just cellulose. It is composed of indigestible carbohydrates with various chemical structures that are resistant to the enzymes in the gut you use to break down the rest of your nutrients, 
so that they can be absorbed. Wheat bran is about 50% dietary fiber, which is insoluble, and about 5% soluble. Your gut biome is composed of billions of bacteria that can metabolize some of this fiber, and it is an important source of nutrients for this vital organ of your body. I discussed the importance of the gut biome earlier. Most of the flour sold has the bran removed. After reading the above, why would anyone want to do this? I am going to write a section on milling below, but before we get too hard on these people, we must recognize what type of food bread was for most of the history up to the last 150 years. The bread was hard, tough, heavy, and a dense food. It could be used as a container for soup or as a plate on which to eat food. After about a day, it was difficult to eat unless soaked in water or some other liquid. Toasting at a speech was bread dipped in beer or wine. This was not done for show. It was just the bread was too hard to eat. I agree it was nutritious and portable and would last several days if you were traveling, but it was nothing like the bread we eat today. Many techniques were tried to make the bread more palpable, but of course whole wheat bread dough just does not rise that well. As time went on, as time went on, grain with more gluten was developed, and instead of natural yeast, that is sourdough, or leftover brewer's yeast, some better baker's yeast was developed. It was still a heavy, dense product with a tough crust, but it was a little bit better. Those of you who grind and bake with your own wheat at home, despite using the modern grain, know what kind of bread this is. So give these millers a break when they figured out how to make light, fluffy bread. The first wheat grains were hulled. This required breaking down the hull, which was performed using something like a mortar and pestle. Then the grain was winnowed to separate the husk from the grain. Then the grain was ground up to produce smaller particles. For most of history, this consisted of rubbing the grain between two stones. This enables one to get a small enough size, about half a millimeter or about 500 microns, to make bread that did not feel grainy. This flour had a range of particle size, but as long as the largest was less than 500 microns, the bread had a reasonable texture. When we started out, the grain did not have a lot of gluten and did not rise much with the addition of natural, that is sourdough, yeast. But the cultivation of wheat parallels the development of civilization and also the brewing of beer, so there was extra yeast around to use. Some people did not like the sour part of sourdough bread, so they used brewer's yeast. The milling of wheat by the rubbing of two stones together was slowly made more efficient, till the Romans developed grist mills, where this could be done in larger quantities. During this time, the bakers figured out that you could remove the bran from the whole wheat flour, and the bread would have a better texture, rise a little more, and be lighter in color. It was just not that easy to do, so the flour without as much bran was a premium product. Everyone wanted it, but few could afford it. Even 3,500 years ago, the Mosaic Law advises the offerings to be made of fine flour. 
indicating that even then it was possible to make a higher quality of flour, it was just not used much by the common man. Now you can pick a variety of wheat that could grow almost anywhere. There is nothing wrong with barley, flour, or rye. They have distinct taste which can be desirable. With the crossbreeding of these grains, they can produce somewhat more gluten than a couple of thousand years ago, but they are never going to be described as light and fluffy. Barley grain is physically hard, and to remove the bran they must be pearled, which means that instead of crushing the grain, the bran is rubbed off. Anyway, in the Middle Ages, advancements in milling were made by making large stones rubbed together, driven by water or wind power, making flour much more plentiful and hence more bread. We had baker's yeast and wheat grain development through crossbreeding was continuing, and although the bread may have been marginally lighter and less dense, it was still nothing like today. We had better control over the particle size, and I am going to say that most flour particle size was less than 420 microns. There was still a range of sizes, but the biggest was 420. You could just run the mill flour through the mill again, and perhaps get a larger percentage of smaller grains, but this was expensive, and the resulting flour more expensive. Hence, the common man was stuck with the first run. The first run was still better than it was 2,000 years previously, as to the quality of the flour, but still far from light and fluffy bread. Now, with larger mills, you could realistically separate the bran somewhat. It turns out that not only does the bran make the bread darker, because of the various molecules of the, in the bran providing its color, but bran also interfered with the rising of the bread and the development of the gluten network. As an aside, now we know why bran may interfere with the rising. For the gluten network to develop, water must be added to the proteins to get them to unfold and form a network to trap the gas. Bran fiber interferes with this protein hydration such that the gluten network is not properly activated. This may extend the time required for dough development and reduces the trapping ability of the gluten network. As time went on, we developed centralized mills using water and air power, that is windmills, to turn grist mills. In general, we had one pass of the grain to make the common flour. You could have flour with less bran and a more consistent and maybe smaller particle size, but you would have to pay extra. For thousands of years, people stored grain in their house and milled it as needed at home using small hand mills. As milling became a larger and more efficient industry, more people just bought flour at the market. Most of them bought the common flour, a few rich people bought the more refined flour that could be used to make lighter bread. Now we have a different problem, as the germ in the flour, which contains much of the fat, goes rancid in about six months. We figured out that if you remove the germ, the flour lasts a lot longer. So along with getting rid of the bran, millers now also got rid of the germ. I say they got rid of it, but they fed it to livestock who liked it just fine. At this point in history, many more people are living in cities and not only stopped making their own flour, but just bought it 
or got bread from the local bakeries who could use the economy of scale to sell white light bread. If you were using a lot of flour 12 months a year, you were going to have to be importing flour from longer distances and needed it to have a longer shelf life. We didn't know anything about vitamins or minerals in food back then, so it seemed like a great idea to get rid of the brand and the germ to get the flour that the customer wanted. In the mid-1800s, steam power, the steel industry, and the development of technology using roller mills to crush grains was developed. Now we had smoother wheels that could be spun faster and were more efficient in milling. Instead of crushing the seed, you could crack the husk and make the removal of germ and bran much easier. In addition, now we could use wheat varieties that had grains that were harder, that is physically, and contained more gluten. We took the bran and germ left over and gave them to the cattle for feed, which powered the meat industry. While we were at it, we figured out that we could use various methods to bleach the flour, making it finely white, not just lighter. Hardly anyone was grinding flour at home, and now most everyone bought bread at the market. Certainly, lots of bread products such as biscuits and pastry items were made at home, which required a slightly lower gluten content and a finer sized particle, and dough rising was not an issue. But plenty of flour was used in the various food industries, and all of it was roller ground, de-germinated, free of bran, and bleached. In the 1920s, we recognized that the germ was an important part of the nutrition and vitamins of bread. To avoid bad publicity and possible government action, the mills began adding back some of the minerals and vitamins, mainly A and B1, back to the flour. Now we have enriched flour, which is said to be as good as whole wheat, but no bran, no germ, which could go bad. Nice and white and good gluten content. Obviously, this is better for you than the old-fashioned whole wheat flour. No, it is not better. There are several micronutrients and minerals as well as various molecules contained in the bran that may be necessary to maintain health in a proper gut biome. Whole wheat bread has been able to prevent starvation and provide a sustenance diet for thousands of years. I doubt if I could say the same thing about modern white bread. I am trying to decrease the amount of processing in my bread and avoid chemicals in my diet, especially those that have not been in our diet for the previous 5,000 years. Later in the book, I will sum up the whole purpose of the book, which is why we are getting obese and what we can do about it regarding a diet. I will discuss particle size further. Most of the time, the germ of the grain is removed along with the bran. The germ is only about 3% of the weight of the whole grain. We already talked about fat in the germ reducing the shelf life of the flour. The germ contains essential fatty acids as well as long-chain fatty alcohols and fat-soluble vitamins, such as vitamin E, along with B vitamins. The germ is the seed embryo and hence contains all the molecular elements required to grow the plant. It also contains some sucrose and monosaccharides, but most of the energy needed to grow the plant is contained in the endosperm. 
The endosperm is about 80 to 85 percent of the grain. The endosperm is surrounded by the algerone layer, the same layer in the bran, and extends within the seed to separate the endosperm from the germ. The endosperm is primarily composed of starch granules embedded in a protein-gluten matrix, but about 75% of the protein content of the grain is also found in the endosperm. The endosperm is softer than bran or germ and can be milled to very small particle sizes. This is useful if you are using flour with low gluten as it will give you a much more even rise with smaller bubbles and less chewy texture, and you can use chemical leavening instead of yeast. This is what you want for cakes and cookies. The endosperm contains four classes of storage protein. Globulins and albumins are a class of water-soluble proteins that have little to do with bread making. Gliadins and glutenins are insoluble in water and are the components of gluten. All of these are storage proteins, and their job is actually to provide nutrition to the growing plant. It just so happens that these gluten proteins can also facilitate the making of bread. The gluten protein gets all the press, but the albumins and globulins make the bread nutritious and contain many essential amino acids and enzymes that benefit both the digestion and nutrition of wheat. Although most of the medical problems related to bread come from the glutens, there can be a few from the globulin and albumin proteins. I have referred several times to the history of bread in that you could survive on bread alone. Now you know I mean by the bread before the modern history. When we started messing around and removing the bran and the germ and bleaching the flour, we no longer have bread that you could survive on. You may now understand why I am advocating stone ground bread. This uses the whole grain and the bran and germ are not removed. In addition, the particle size of stone ground bread has remained fairly constant over thousands of years. I'll talk about roller milling in a little while. This chapter has been an excerpt from the book Bread in the Modern Diet. You could just decide not to eat any bread and skip the, the chapter. But bread really includes cookies and cakes and biscuits so you are going to eat bread in the normal maintenance diet, just like people have eaten bread for thousands of years. Just not the same bread we're eating today. Remember, Amazon will give you a listing of my books. It will also give you a listing of a lot of smaller articles in ebook form that are part of the Health Topics podcast. Now is the time for part two of this podcast. I know you thought the podcast was over, but I'm just checking to make sure you listen to the very end. 
Let's go back to the start of the book. I was looking for a reason why we have this poor dietary ep epidemic. It seems to have been increasing over the last 80 or so years, but probably started earlier than that. I have already gone over numerous dietary changes. We have gone through that, I believe, may be the basis for the development of insulin resistance, which is the foundation for most of these dietary diseases. The effect of our diet on the gut biome is another large factor in other diseases, such as autoimmune and dementia. Carbs somehow have led us to this point. I have repeated I believe it is not only the total amount, but also the rapidity of the insulin spike related to the glucose spike. The faster the glucose goes up, the higher and more rapidly the insulin goes up, and the more total insulin is secreted relative to a slower amount of the same amount of carbohydrates. I have already gone over sucrose and high fructose corn syrup, as well as the increased amount of fructose we are now consuming. My problem initially was that the historical diets were high-carb, yet no epidemic of modern Western disease. I hope you have a better understanding of bread and its importance in the history of man. When Adam was expelled from the garden, he was told he would eat bread till he returned to the ground. Over several thousand years in biblical history, bread was constantly referred to, even to the point where a man could live on bread alone. In the history since, we have seen man constantly having bread as a part of the diet, as this was by far the most common way to consume wheat, and grains have been a major part of the Western diet. In the last 75 years, we have seen how the development of dwarf wheat has eliminated mass starvation in much of the world. A modern diet involves bread eating. If you paid any attention in the last few chapters, you can see how bread has changed. There has always been a little fine flour. Now it is over 95% of the flour. Traditionally, flour was stone ground as it has been for most of history. This stone ground flour had a consistent average of particle size, almost regardless of what time period we are talking about or where it was being ground. Grinding it 4,000 years ago gave about the same result as grinding it 1,000 years ago. That is, in term of the average particle size of the grain of flour. Over the last 200 or so years, that has changed. With the advent of roller milling using steel rollers, we have markedly reduced the average size of a particle of flour. It used to be that about 20 to 30 percent of the flour had a diameter less than 250 microns. Now most of the flour we eat is all less than 90 microns, that is unless you are eating stone ground flour. The average particle size is now about one third or less than what it was for thousands of years. We can now grind flour to the size of a little bit larger than a red blood cell. This makes great light fluffy bread, but is it slowly causing insulin resistance? Recall our discussion of glucose and how more rapidly it can be digested and absorbed as the particle gets smaller and the surface area relative to the volume gets larger. 
the enzymes now have rapid access to the smaller starch particles and as a result much more rapid absorption than with a larger particle. I agree sucrose is still much more rapidly absorbed but now starch is also more rapidly absorbed and getting closer to the sucrose glucose rate. Around 1900 and earlier we had those reports of less civilized societies. We gave them food in the form of sugar and flour. They all then developed western disease. Sure they had plenty of food but most likely they had plenty of food before westerners arrived. Now they had plenty of food and plenty of new western diseases in the form of obesity and diabetes. It was the combination of sugar and finely ground flour, not stone ground, that I believe caused the problem. Your body is finely adapted to your environment. It can keep man alive and well with almost any diet, but not the insulin resistance diet. Of course, this diet can only exist with processed food. The processing of grain by modern methods is, I believe, a significant cause of insulin resistance. That is why the historical high-carb diet, mainly from grains, did not cause insulin resistance, but the modern diet does. You can now understand how my suggestions of the maintenance diet is trying to prevent this. You may understand why I advise a lower percentage of carbohydrates in the diet than the historical diet, secondary to the modern processing of food. Now you may understand why I advise stone ground flour. Of course, you can't eat stone ground flour all the time, as most desserts cannot use it. I advise desserts as part of the joy of eating. So that is one reason I advise a lower carb diet than the historical diet. Practically speaking, we will end up eating some processed food. So to make up for that, we will eat fewer carbs in total. Not the low-carb diet, unless you are on the low-carb maintenance diet, but less than 50% carbs in your diet. Let me remind you of semolina. This is almost always stone ground and hence an historical particle size. Semolina flour is not usually stone ground. Semolina is made from durum wheat and used to make pastas, not bread. It seems counterintuitive, but if you look at the ingredients of pasta compared to bread, there are very few additives, sometimes none. Can it be that pasta is better for you than bread? I will also talk about oats later. Oats do not have enough gluten to make bread, but rolled oats are not ground into flour. Also, next time you look at rolled oats, Look at the ingredient list. There may be nothing there but oats. Think about it. Large particle size, no additives, sounds like a good deal. Although unlike bread, it is not sweet. Of course, the sweetness of bread comes from the small particle size. I admit oats are pretty bland, and most of the time you have to add something. Just do not add a lot of carbs. I am going to give you some more information about bread in the next few chapters. But in the last few minutes that you've heard, I have given you the crux of how the modern Western diet has led us to our present state. I know you may be tired of hearing this, but the modern processing of flour also affects the gut biome. 
you can see how the bacteria are now seeing more glucose than was historically there. Bread has four ingredients. Next time you buy a loaf of bread at the store, look at the ingredient list.